Oh, man. Hey, pretend you didn't hear this. All right, here we go. Hey, welcome to Midtown. Uh, glad you're with us. Home churches, glad you're here. You missed some great jokes, but my microphone's off. Uh, I'm not doing it again. Uh, you'll get over it. 12 South, it's who, it's who it's for anyway. Get, you'll hear these stories anyway. It's fine. Um, I'm so sorry. Y'all can sit down. It's not that kind of church. It's not that kind of church. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know why I said that. Hey, uh, but glad you're with us, Uh, glad to be here to preach the Word of God to you. So uh, if you will, if you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, I think it'll be on the screen behind me, uh, if you have a copy of your Scriptures, your Bible or whatever, um, on your phone, will be 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10. So 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 this morning. Uh, Let us give our attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. As you come to Him, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Our great and gracious Heavenly King, this morning, uh, as we dive into what you have for us, uh, remind us, uh, remind us first and remind us most uh, that you love us, uh, that you have called us from darkness to light, uh, that you are building us together uh, into a temple of living stones that proclaim the goodness of you across the world. And so, God, this morning, I ask that you would forgive the sins of the messenger, for they are many. I would ask that you would send your spirit uh, to envelop us, uh, to to capture our hearts, uh, and to set us free. Uh, And we will leave here rejoicing because you have done so. And it's in your son's name we do pray. Amen. It was the fall of 2002. I I was working at this factory. Uh, It's called TRW. Uh, that's how you pronounced it. And we made, uh, we made steering columns, super boring. It's as boring as it sounds right now. Uh, and I, the factory had closed, and I didn't know what to do. Um, I didn't really want to go to college. Um, and so I was just sort of stuck. And my young life leader, who I had maintained a relationship with after high school, had told me about this summer-long discipleship program that took place in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And he was like, hey, man, you ought to just go here for the summer, spend three months. Uh, It seems cool. I've never done it, but you should probably do it. And I was like, okay, I don't have anything else to do. Uh, So I went there for what I thought was going to be three months, and I stayed for seven years. Um, Remedial. It was a remedial course for me. It didn't didn't stick. And so uh, I I was there for seven years. Uh, I had fallen in love with the family who ran the program. And uh, But what I found out is once, like, all the college kids left— like, all, I didn't have any friends. And so I was like by myself in this town, I didn't know anybody. And I'd heard that if you went to church, you could find friends there. 
And so for the first time in years and years, I decided to go to church. And so I went and I met these two brothers uh, named Clayton and Jesse. And they were, they were like, like, they looked like Gimli from Lord of the Rings, like they were as wide as they were tall, um, but were super outdoorsy guys, which I was not. And uh, like, I think camping is the worst thing you can do to somebody. And I was like, I mean, I guess like I'll hang out with y'all. We don't really have much in common, but I need friends. Uh, my desire for friends sort of trumped my hatred of the outside. So uh, I was like, sure, yeah, I'll be your friend. Uh, they showed up at my house one day and they're like, hey man, uh, hop in the truck with us. I'm gonna show you something. I was like, this is where I die. This is where little Gimli hits me with his ax. Um, and so uh, I hopped in the truck and we drove up this, to this place called Bluff Mountain. Um, it sits behind the Walmart in Sevierville. Next time y'all go to Dollywood, you'll see it. Um, and at the top of this mountain is this old fire tower. It's kind of this rickety old structure that really should be torn down. Um, but at the base of this fire tower, there's this fire pit that had like used needles and dirty diapers in it. And I'm like, what's that combination? Uh, hopefully that wasn't at the same time. And, uh, and I was like, oh, this, this place is super creepy. And they were like, well, we have to climb to the top of this tower. And it had some steps were steel and some were wooden and some were gone. And I don't like, as a guy who doesn't trust like plastic patio furniture, I was like, I don't trust this. I don't trust this staircase at all. And um, I went up it, it, it held, it was fine. And we made it to the top. And y'all, when we got to the top, something happened in me. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just that it was such a clear view of like, just like the Smokies were there and they're just kind of beautiful. I don't know if it was that. Like, I don't know if it was because I had friends finally, I felt like. I don't know if it, maybe it was like a contact buzz from all the weed that had been smoked up there. But I was just like, like I started crying. And this has never happened to me before. And I fell in love with like this place that I lived um, because I saw it from sort of a different angle. Like I was, I was, I was kind of above the city and I was like, man, this, like, this is really cool. Like I should really kind of lose myself into this. Um, when Peter wrote this in 1 Peter, uh, he's presenting us a portrait of God's church that I would bet is radically different uh, than what we think church is or how we treat church. And Peter is asking readers to look at Christ through the lens, or sorry, look at church through the lens of Jesus. And when you do, you're going to see something there that is radically different because you're going to see this movement that is the church, not as sort of a dull, drab building with like bad lighting and, and lukewarm coffee, but as this living, breathing organism that has gathered together for centuries to encourage and to embolden its members to turn the world upside down, uh, to turn the world inside out with the love and the mercy of Jesus. So we'll see three things in this passage. We're going to see a radical community, we'll see a radical purpose, and we'll see radical mercy. So community, purpose, and mercy. Uh, so let's dive in first with radical community. If we look at verses 4 and 6 again, Peter is presenting us with this mind-blowing proposition. Uh, this proposition that Jesus dwells with his people, that God dwells with his people. Uh, the temple was that. 
The temple was the place where God dwelled. And Peter is saying, hey, even though the temple's gone, you guys are actually the temple. Um, and so we gather together just like the temple of old. Uh, the temple of old that was built to house the Ark of the Covenant and all that other weird stuff that you learned about when you were a kid, that temple held the glory of God that was so bright and so fierce that when Moses had asked God, hey, just let me see you, God tells him, no, he's like, it'll kill you, you can't look at me, but I'll let you see me kind of as I walk by. Um, the Spirit of God that is so fierce that his train of his robe fills the temple. Um, Peter is saying that's what we have access to. Uh, that's actually who we are. Uh, that as those who are being built into living stones, we are now that. God's mercy is pouring through us. Um, and it's, his power is shining through us so much that we're just like the temple of old. Um, and this temple language is all over the Bible. It can be kind of confusing. Um, it's sort of boring how much they lay out all the stuff that's in there. But in Ezekiel 47, our boy Zeke, Ezekiel, is given this vision from the Lord. And God's people are in exile, and they're terrified. They're worried that they're never going to get to see the temple again. And so uh, God gives Ezekiel this vision of this new temple. And the temple's there, and on one side, there's just a little trickle of water. That's a really strange vision if you read about it. Uh, there's this little trickle of water and Ezekiel keeps walking through, and then the water gets toe deep, and then the water gets ankle deep, and then it's up to his knees, then to his waist, then to his chest, and then he gets to the other side of the temple, and the river is so vast, Ezekiel says, that he could not ford it, that man could not cross it. And he's given this further vision as this river flows out to the sea, and on each side of its banks are trees that flourish. And God says, the trees are flourishing, and their fruit is good for food. What Ezekiel is seeing here, and what Peter is reinforcing, is that we're that temple. Uh, that as God's glory flows through us, and life flows out of us, not for us to store all the water in rain buckets and barrels like we're a doomsday prepper, but that our lives would water the world around us and bring nourishment and flourishing to the world around us. This river of grace flowing so deep that it can't be crossed. And it starts with a single trickle of water, a single solitary people called the church who dare to trust the promises of God. And that results in a flood of mercy to all who are in its path. Uh, friends, that's God's design for you. Uh, your neighbor needs this. Your neighbor needs you. Uh, as we meet in person, we can only fit 40 people in a room. And so we have these home churches, and they exist in this season for this reason. Accidental rhyme. They exist in this season, um, and you're simply not opening your home. Uh, if you're hosting a home church, you're not just opening your home. You're allowing folks to peek their head into heaven, if only for an hour on a Sunday, and be swept away in this river of delight that flows from her center uh, Christian, God didn't set the church free uh, to be this sort of anemic uh, country club that sings kind of goofy songs. Um, he set us free and said that when we gather, heaven watches, and that the angels are curious, and that the world changes, and that the gates of hell rattle because he has poured out 
his glory on this little patch of grass, uh, this little town uh, that we call Nashville. He's poured out his glory that when the master plan of hell, the master plan of the devil, uh, was to kill Jesus, and if they did that, then all his father followers would kind of scatter like these little rats. But it did the opposite. It actually emboldened Christians, and it emboldened the church. And that cornerstone known as Jesus that Paul talks about here, um, the one that Satan was like, hey, if we just kill him, then the whole movement dies, actually becomes the cornerstone that this whole temple is built on. Um, that Jesus is the one who pours out his Holy Spirit on us. Uh, this radical community that can then lock arms together and march forward with the radical purpose of changing the world for the sake of Jesus. This is going to bring us to our second, per, uh, second point this morning, the radical purpose. If we look again at verses 5 and verse 9, there's a little section in there that we kind of skip over. Um, if you've engaged in this radical community, then you are engaging in the radical purpose of the church on earth. And that purpose, Paul says, is priesthood. It's the purpose of priesthood. Um, so what does that mean? Because in the last few weeks, you've heard us talk a lot about the function of a priest, um, that when you browse through the Old Testament, what you see is that the priest is basically this door between the people and God, uh, between God and his people. And if you wanted access to God, you had to go through the priest. And then once a year, there was the high priest who's kind of super priest, and he went into the Holy of Holies, which is in the very middle of the temple, and he had to take a sacrifice, first for himself, uh, to kind of wash his sins away, and then he would offer a sacrifice for all the people. And if God was pleased with that, everything would be fine. Uh, but if you look around at your home church or you look around in this building, like we don't have bulls or goats sort of just wandering around. Um, they're probably not slicing the necks of some doves at a home church. And so if that's a priest, then why do you, why do you keep calling me that? Uh, why do you keep telling me that that's what I am because I'm not killing anything? Um, Look at First Peter here. You're a royal priesthood. And that isn't like the singular you. Uh, this is Paul, or sorry, Peter using sort of good southern Greek. This is like y'all. Um, he's saying like all y'all are priests. So not just you, not just you, Daryl, but all y'all, like the whole church. Uh, you're all priests for each other. And our purpose is to point to this wide open door of Jesus and proclaim his excellencies through his life and his work on the cross. That if Jesus is Emmanuel, if he is God with us, and that the presence of God is now immediately in front of his people, his spirit is no longer distant, is no longer unreachable. But instead, Scripture tells us that where two or more are gathered, there he is in the midst thereof. That when the people of God gather in a home church or in a backyard, or here in this sanctuary, we would have to ask the question, would you dare believe that God is here with us? Uh, would you dare to believe that his Holy Spirit is here, that his presence is here in and through us, through us as a living sermon to the world around us, proclaiming Jesus Christ did something for me, did something for all y'all that we could not do for ourselves, believing that our lives are so connected with each other uh, that if we really are living stones, just like the bricks you see in a house, 
uh, that were built together and were linked together, so much so that if one brick is hurting, then we're all hurting. That if you're crying, then we taste tears. That if one brick is rejoicing, then the rest of us are rejoicing. That if one brick is expecting a baby on September 29th, that the other bricks would bring meals to his house. (laughs) Hypothetically, right? Hypothetically. It's so radically different. It's so radically different than what the world wants. Because the world wants a country club. Uh, They want everyone who just sort of looks and thinks and votes and behaves in the same way they do. Like if you put peppermint oil on your kid's ear so it falls asleep, like you can be in our club. Or if you buy your wine at Trader Joe's, you can be in our club. Um, Or if you're gluten-free, you can be in our club. And for no one to really challenge your way of thinking. Um, We all want to be the last one in before the gate closes. Uh, to surround ourselves with people who just think like we do. But Peter is saying here, the church will never be that. And we can't expect it to. The church is a movement. It's not an institution. It's global. It's worldwide. And it proclaims to the outside world that the truest thing about you uh, is that you're a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. That whatever you think about wearing a mask like isn't the truest thing about you, that whether you call it a pandemic or a plandemic is not the truest thing about you, that who you vote for isn't the truest thing about you. What Peter is saying here is that whatever your opinion is on matters, it's not the truest thing about you. Uh, Maybe you vote right, maybe you vote left. Uh, Maybe you eat meat, maybe you don't. Uh, Maybe you watch The Bachelor. I don't know. But whatever those things are, they're not the truest thing about you. What he is saying is that the church gathers together as different as they are, as different as everyone there is. They stand together and they can sing things like guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless glam of God was he, full atonement, can it be, hallelujah, what a savior. That the church could be a movement full of folks who look vastly different but are equally covered in the blood of Jesus, and that we as priests are simply beggars telling other beggars where they can find some bread, Uh, that we're just telling folks, hey, down the street, uh, at this house over here, the people in there are different. But how do we do this? How do we harness the power of a radical community and the mission of a radical purpose to go out and change the world? Uh, None of this is possible, y'all, all all y'all. None of this is possible without the mercy of God. Which is going to bring us to our last point here, the radical mercy of God. None of this is possible unless we know who we are. Uh, None of this is possible without understanding that our true identity is that Jesus Christ has called us his brothers and his sisters. Uh, That God the Father has said, you're my son, and you're my daughter, Uh, that we are so inextricably linked with Jesus because his blood covers our head, uh, that God the Father looks at us and is pleased with us. Um, We have to know that 
And we have to live out of that before we can do any of the things that we've talked about before. Because the church will not have an ounce of influence in the world without its members understanding that. Without its members knowing their true identity. And it's not until we look at our hearts and examine them and desperately see that we have a desperate need for Jesus to make sense of our life. And that we're without hope, um, if not for his work on the cross. Look at what Peter says here in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you have not received mercy, and now you have, that sentence is so easy to gloss over because we forget who we are. But, but good grief, that verse is the orphan's wildest dream. That I didn't have a family before, but now I do. That I was sort of lost and, and by myself and, and didn't know where I belonged. And Peter says, hey, there's a temple, and that's where you belong. You belong in the family of God. And it, it, it kicks against this prodigal suspicion that we have to work our way back. That we've messed up, and now I have to work my way back. Uh, Reverend Ricky Jones, a friend of mine out in Oklahoma, um, he wrote a book called Too Good to Be True. And he tells the story of his friend who grew up in the foster system. Um, we'll call him Bob because I couldn't find my book to actually look at what his real name was. Um, we'll call him Bob. He's not that good of a friend. Um, Bob had grown up in some pretty treacherous conditions. Uh, he, was, he was sort of shuffled around. He was an older elementary kid in the foster system, so he was sort of shuffled around a lot. And he had developed this habit of bedwetting. And because he did that, nobody really wanted him. Um, the foster homes were like, kind of take him in. And they're like, man, he's difficult. He's got some social stuff going on. Uh, we need to boot that kid. Uh, he was bouncing around from house to house. One family uh, was even so fed up with him uh, that they would make him stand with his, like, his pee sheets um, by the side of the road and wait for the bus just to sort of shame him into stopping. Like, maybe if we do that, he'll quit. And buckets of shame heaped on him. And understandably so, uh, Bob kind of thought it was all hope was lost. But this older couple who wanted to adopt an older elementary kid uh, had heard about him, and they wanted to go meet him. Uh, the person who ran, like, his caseworker said, you probably don't want him. Like, he's really difficult. And the guy said, hey, we'll just give it a shot. And so uh, they, he bought this little toy plane, and he stuck it in his pocket, and he was like, hey, if, he tells his wife, if, if we want to get Bob, I'm going to slide this plane to him and ask him if he wants to be our son. And so they go pick him up, they go to this restaurant, big bowl of soup comes, Bob's never been to a restaurant. He knocks the soup over onto the lap of the, the guy, of the dad, the soon-to-be dad, and he's just devastated, like, oh, man, he's blown it. Um, but the guy just kind of dabs his pants with his napkin, and he handed him the plane, and he said, hey, Bob, do you want to come be my son? And Bob reluctantly agreed because he didn't know what that meant. And so that night, they take him to their house, and they show him what is going to be his bedroom. And he just stands at the door of his room, and he starts bawling. He's just crying, so many tears. And the mom comes in, and she's like, hey, what's up, buddy? And he's like, I can't sleep here. Like, I'll pee the bed. Um, I can't stay there. And she said, if you do, then we'll clean you up and we'll give you a fresh set of sheets. Um, and if you pee the bed tomorrow, we'll do the same thing. 
Um, and every night we'll do that until you either don't do it or you keep doing it. It doesn't matter. But the thing is, after that, Bob never peed the bed again. Um, he never wet the bed again. In fact, he, he sort of bucked all the stereotypes and is now like highly functioning. He pastors a church down in Florida that's, that's wildly successful. And we tell you that story to tell you that mercy changes everything. Uh, mercy changes the world. Uh, it changes systems. It changes towns. It changes streets. It changes homes. It changes individuals. Uh, mercy doesn't shame you. Scripture tells us mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, mercy is what this world needs. That's what this world needs, right? Mercy doesn't kneel on somebody's neck for nine minutes. Uh, mercy doesn't put seven bullets in somebody's back. It needs it needs mercy almost seemingly now in 2020 more than ever before. And that mercy is no more evident uh, than when we look at the cross of Calvary, where Jesus Christ hung, soaked in our filthy rags and our sin and our shame and taking what should have been ours and bearing it and crying out loud, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Um, Jesus cries that out so we never have to know what that's like. It happens to Jesus so that we don't have to know what it's like to be forsaken and forgotten by God. Friends, Jesus is not in heaven tapping his foot. He's not looking at his watch. Um, he's not pacing the floor. Jesus isn't anxious. Jesus isn't scared. Jesus isn't exhausted with you. Jesus isn't exasperated with you. He's not angry, he's not sleeping, and he isn't waiting for some other shoe to drop. He's not hiding a hammer behind his back to smack you with, because the hammer fell on him. The other shoe dropped on him, and Jesus sits in the throne room of grace, interceding for us confidently, because he knows that what he did on the cross worked for us, and it worked for me. And because of that, we can move forward um, and we can dodge and duck and leave this prodigal suspicion that if we mess up and if we wet the bed that we'll be out on the street. Because instead, he's built a home for you. He's built a home for all y'all. And as his priests, we can swing wide open the door between heaven and earth and proclaim like we will here in a minute and sing it so loud that it rattles the rafters of heaven that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand until he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray together. King Jesus, you have made us a way to you. Um, you've made a way for us uh, to see and to savor all that you have for us, to see the beauty um, of a twisted up tree uh, that held your body, uh, of, of the ground that was soaked in blood uh, for your people, uh, that you lived a perfect life for us and you died the perfect death for us, um, something we could never repay and something you don't demand that we do. Uh, Father God, uh, by your grace in sending your son Jesus, we are so thankful for this. And as we continue in worship, both here and at home, um, 
remind us of this. Uh, let us get lost in this, uh, that you are a great Savior and that you love great sinners. And it's in your son's name we do pray. Amen.